If you'd open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 19. This is not my introduction. I just want to say something that's a general thing for us just to remember as we go through the book of Ephesians, especially now, because it's easy to start to forget this concept that I think is very important, and that is that there are places in Scripture where clearly the individual believer is in mind, that clearly there is a very clear statement to you as an individual, you need to think about this, you need to do this. But what I will contend with you is that those places are rare. And I think this is a problem for us because we tend to get fixated on the individual to the neglection of the whole. And why that's important is not to say that your individual spirituality, your individual Christianity, your individual holiness, your individual belief is unimportant. I would rather say that you really don't see how important it is unless you see how it affects the whole. That's really where the importance lies. It is important for us to look that when Jesus prays for us, he prays for us as a collective group. That doesn't demise the individual person. As it's right to say, Jesus died for me. He did. But there is something, if I totally think about Jesus dying for me, I miss the point that Jesus really, the scriptures tell us, came to die for a people, to separate a people. And all through Ephesians, what's in view is the corporate people of God. And if you take all these holiness statements and you basically start to say, well, me, 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 you've missed the main point. If you understand what I'm saying, nod your heads. What I'm trying to get you to understand is, is this is about we much more than it is about me. So that what happens is when you hear Paul making statements like, but encourage one another. He's not trying to say that you're, it's bad for you to care about another person. What he's trying to say is, is this, or, or you should go and say, brother, I'm really concerned about these things you're doing. But what he is suggesting to you is what needs to dominate the people of God is this constant pursuit of the good. Think about what he says in Philippians. Think on these things, whatsoever good, whatsoever true, whatsoever noble, whatsoever beauty. Think on these things. That is not to deny sin. It is not to deny the need to be at work in our own hearts. What it is to say is, is that we're supposed to keep in our minds what we are becoming and what we should be pursuing together. That should be what dominates us. So that even when I come to you and say, I'm not sure what you decided to do when you did this, the spirit is always restorative, encouraging, drawing that person back to the hope that we have in God, not discouraging, not damning. That is not how the people of God should treat one another. I want you to think about that, and hopefully as we go through this section here, I want you just to think about what's going on, because Paul is saying, this is the way we were. And the other parts of Scripture where he says, the way Gentiles operate is they eat each other. They destroy each other. They undermine each other. They lie about each other. They slander each other. They gossip about each other. It ought not be that way among you. And that you is a southern you, y'all. It ought not be this way among y'all. Or if you were up in the north, you might say you skies. Whatever your comfortable vocabulary 
understand that this is supposed to be something where we're concerned together about what we are together. There's kind of a synergistic idea here. The sum is greater than its parts alone. We are better together than we are if you just counted each one of us as individuals. That's ultimately what Paul is trying to say. The church, as it comes together, illuminates God in a way that an individual can never do. So just kind of keep that in mind as we start to look at what Paul is saying here. I realize that was a brief excursion outside of the text, but I want you to kind of see that that's what Paul's doing for us this whole time. The church, you're this temple, you're this big example of what I'm doing in the world. Okay, let's read this text. If you would stand with me. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, and reading through verse 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. As we approach this section, we started looking at it a little bit last week, but as we approach this section, it might be helpful for us to review what Paul says we must know why we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul basically has shown us the grand design for his glory and his creatures. And he says, this has all been realized in the person and work of Jesus. Paul says, you've got to see the fact that all the problems that mankind has have been addressed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has defeated the powers of darkness, Paul has told us. He has defeated the spiritual death of human beings and in so doing defeated the physical death. Ultimately, we will be raised from the dead unto life you do realize that every single human being will be raised from the dead. Those who are condemned will be raised to eternal damnation. And those who are redeemed will be raised to eternal life. He has also defeated the alienation of humanity from their creator God. Paul says these three things have taken place. The final reality of this has not yet been fully realized And Paul tells us that too. We're still waiting for the fullness of this to come. But its reality has begun. It's broken in. Christ is the head of the church and has been given to the church to make the church a display of his multifaceted, multidimensional wisdom to be seen by a watching cosmos. And the reason why I say a watching cosmos is because I want you to understand, I want to again remind us as Paul goes back. Paul says that the church has a multifaceted, multidimensional aspect to it. That there are things in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realms, that we can't see, but they can see us. So we're both a testimony into other dimensions, if you will, as well as a testimony to the universe, and particularly this world, this planet, and the people on it. We have a very important role in the life of the cosmos. 
Again, I want to take you back to that because we talked about that, but that was several months ago. And I want you to remember again, the church collectively has a responsibility to declare and to show forth the glory of God, to show forth His redemption, to confound angels and demons, human beings of all stripes, are to see in the church a display of the greatness and the glory and the salvation of God. That is the church. It is through the church that the world is to see Christ's glory and believe in Him as the Redeemer, the Liberator, the Restorer of humanity. They are to see this as the church grows in unity and stability. Remember what Paul said. We're supposed to grow in unity and we're supposed to grow in stability. That's what he's doing. Unity because he's united us together in the Spirit. Stability because he's given us his word and he's given us apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers to teach that word and equip us with that word. So we see that he is bringing stability to his people. And this is also seen through the gifts of grace that he gives to his people. It's not just the ministers that have these gifts. They have particular gifts. They have a particular office to carry out. But every one of you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, has been gifted. And it is a responsibility of the leadership of this church to help you Use your gift to grow the church and to expand the fame of our triune God. Paul wants us to see that as objects of grace, that we are his workmanship. Remember when he told us that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which he prepared beforehand so that you would walk or live in them and live them out. Now, if you begin to see all that, that's Ephesians 1 to 4.16. We just had a little synopsis. And so we're here at 4.17 to start looking at some considerable questions. Here's the first question I want us to look at this morning. Is life, does Paul believe that life is futile apart from Christ? Does he believe it's futile? And you might say, well... Dennis, yes. But I want you to ask yourself that question. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? And if people who know you well, people who live next door to you, people you work with, would they believe that you believe that life is futile apart from Christ? And I'm not saying you've, you know, left tracks in the bathroom and annoyed the crud out of your out of your next door neighbor That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, is there a sense in in your conversation and how you process life that it is very obvious to people that you somehow have an understanding that your life is due to somebody else or at least something else? In other words, they may not yet know fully what you believe about Christ, but we're hoping you're working towards that end. But they do have some sense that these people seem to think that they need somebody outside of themselves to break the futility which everybody in this life to some degree feels. You do understand that. Every single human being, I don't care who they are, believes that somehow life could be better if certain things were different. 
Every human being believes that. Nobody thinks this world is perfect just the way it is. Whether it's a skewed view of how they look at the, their bodies, how they look at their minds, how they look at the politics, how they look, whatever it is, everybody has some sense that things aren't right. And even in some of the major world religions, what is the main thing you do? You become a care less about all those things. That's how you reach nirvana, is because you just learn not to care that things aren't, that things are messed up and they aren't right. And the more you're able to do that, the more you attain to a sense of well-being and wholeness. What we see Paul doing in these three verses is actually giving you a summation, a very good summation of what he takes a lot longer to do in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. But really, if you read these three verses and you go back to Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, and you start to look across these verses, you will start to see a lot of parallels. Suppressing the truth, hardening hearts, darkened ignorant, pursuing evil. God gave them over to a depraved mind. You start to see all these concepts Paul has brought to a very compact, powerful, it's like an energy bar. You know, when you read Romans, you have this big, full-spread meal, and right here in Ephesians, Paul's giving you that power-packed granola, grit, all that stuff all packed into that really thick and just said, and you might actually go past it and not really realize how deep and crunchy and thick and how much you need a lot of drinks of water to really peruse through what Paul's really saying here. But he's really trying to grab hold of us and saying, look, there is this spiraling effect, both in Romans 1 and here, there's this spiraling effect that happens within the people of God, or excuse me, within people apart from Christ, apart from God. And here's what it basically looks like. Fear, frustration, Failure. Now you might say, well, I know plenty of people that aren't afraid. But I can assure you that most people have something that scares them. Most people spend their lives either trying to mask the things that scare them to death or they live scared to death. Most people live this way. And the tragedy is, is that many people among the people of God live this way. Is a, this is a wonderful question to ask under a lot of circumstances. What if? What if? What if? It's a great question to ask when you're trying to think about, what if our church decided to do this? Well, what if we really believed God that he was able to... Those are great kinds of what if questions. The problem is those are usually not the kind of what if questions we ask. We usually ask, well, what if the brakes don't work as we come down Mount Lemmon? What if the company that holds our portfolio crashes? What if this person does this? Well, what if our boss decides to look on us without favor? Well, what if? Those are usually the kind of what ifs that tragically tend to dominate even the people of God. Fear. What if? Which ultimately leads us to the place that we find ourselves in is the fact that we find ourselves frustrated. Now, understand, part of the frustration we feel in this life is a result of the fall. What did God tell Adam? He said, cursed is the ground because of you. 
From it, you will get your sustenance, but it will fight you at every corner. And there comes a point to where as the people of God, when we go into our work situations and find it to be frustrating, this is the thing I always find interesting. Isn't it interesting that most women usually don't fight the fact they know for a fact that childbirth is going to be painful. It's kind of like, that's just a given. We seem to get that part where God says, you will have pain in childbirth. And I think there's more to it that I think it says you will have pain in child rearing. I think it's more than just the birth. I think it really means, and think about the Proverbs, a foolish son brings grief to his mother. So there's a sense of this frustration. But we seem not to get that when it comes to our labors. And I want you to think about this. I used to work in a woodworking shop, and one of the things we used to always talk about is the fact that if we lived in an unfallen world, planers, jointers, which basically give you a, a nice straight edge, planing, which makes it flat and smooth, sanding, a lot of that stuff might not be as complicated and certainly not near as expensive. Because if you've ever gone to a woodworking shop, you will know the major expense you spend is on how to make a piece of wood flat and square so you can actually do something with it. Creation, cursed, frustrating. And when we feel frustration, fear develops. And ultimately what we find is, is that we fail. Every one of us in this room fails. We fail every day, which then you realize the spiral. I failed, so that makes me afraid. I get frustrated. I fail. That makes me afraid. I get frustrated. I fail. And we never get out of that circle. We see the futility. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. Unbelieving people actually get that better than most Christians do in America. If you listen to any popular folk singer right now, you will hear them talk about the realities of the hurt and the pain and the failings and the frustrations of this life in a way that most Christians, and certainly pop Christian radio, has no concept of the ability to speak to. One of my favorite singers is coming soon. Not a believer. Pray that she will be one day because she's fabulous. It's hard to listen to a hard, hard heart. Can you relate with that? It's hard to listen to a hard, hard heart. See, does she have some concept of, the, of Ephesians? And they harden their hearts. It's hard to listen to it. It's hard to deal with it. It's hard to comprehend how to live underneath that. See, there's a certain sense of frustration and futility apart from Christ who actually speaks into our world and says, I am making all things new. There's a sense of comfort when we read Romans 8 and we find out, well, the creation is groaning, but why? For the revealing of the sons of God. For the revealing of the adopted ones in their full resurrection. And when they appear, the creation itself says, we will be freed, we will be purified, we as a creation, will be returned along with the new humanity. And so there's this sense of futility, 
but should not be for the people of God. Do we recognize that there's frustrations? Do we recognize that those things that can bring fear into our lives? Do we really, if you remember last week, we listened to Jesus. Do you really believe Jesus when he says, don't fear anything except the Lord? And then when you fear him, don't be afraid of him. See, there's a difference between the fear of the Lord and being afraid of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a reverence which says, you and no other. You're the supreme. But that's how we begin to work ourselves away from this futility of mind that the Gentiles are condemned to. That unbelievers are condemned to. They are condemned to a futility they cannot escape. They can describe it. They can analyze it. Oftentimes, as I said, they analyze it better than we do. But at the end of the day, they cannot escape it because they don't have Christ. And we need to understand that. We need to understand the only way to help people escape futility is through Christ. That even if we had a better government, even if we had better education systems, even if you sent every child in America to a classical Christian school, apart from Christ, it's meaningless at the end of the day. I'm not saying it wouldn't make for a better society. It very well might. But sometimes when we have a better society, it almost darkens the reality of the stark contrast between what man can do to better himself and what is necessary for him to be better. What's necessary for us to be better is the person and work of Christ. Apart from it, we can do nothing that lasts. Ultimately, as I said, what Scripture is getting to and what Paul has said is that sin lies behind this. Man's answer is not to seek God, but rather to find ways to suggest that their fear is merely a state of mind. We're not really afraid. It's just a state of mind. I have nothing to fear but fear itself. If I just quit fearing fear, then I'm no longer afraid. Fear is just a state of mind. That's what the popular psychology tells us today. They deny frustration by saying that we are exploring and experimenting. See, we didn't fail to accomplish this. We're just experimenting. And of course, experiments fail. That's just the nature of things. So it's not really failure. It's just exploration and experimentation. Finally, the world will often try to deal with failing or frustration, they say, exploring and experimenting, and suggest that we are not failing. We're not failing. We're just evolving. See, that really wasn't a failure. We just, we learned something, and now we'll evolve into better people. So see, the world comes up with its own ways of trying to deal with this. But understand, like I said, that way leads to fear, frustration, and failure, even though they don't believe it does. Now then, moving on to verse 18, look at what Paul says. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Here's a question you might ask yourself, and you can even ask other people this. Is it wise, thoughtful, really, to reject biblical Christianity? Here's one of the things I always find so fascinating. How many people have you ever had a conversation with who go, you know, I looked into that Christianity stuff, but... You know, there's just not a lot to it, not a lot of substance there. 
Have you ever asked them, what do you mean by you looked into that Christianity stuff? Have you ever read the Bible? No. But I went to this church one time. This church by means of, what do you mean by this church or that church? What did you think you were going to get when you got there? Well, it didn't seem to say anything that was relevant to me. Hmm. I wonder why. See, one of the things I want you to begin to do is to begin to get a mindset that says, of course, when you talk to an unbeliever, they think you're a moron. How in the world can you believe that some guy 2,000 years ago came down here, was really God incarnate, but was fully God and fully man? That makes absolutely no sense. That he died. And that now you guys meet every week to celebrate the fact that he rose from the dead. Really? How do you know that? How can you prove that? And you eat him and you drink him. And you marry your brothers and sisters. Think about the language we use all the time. Think about how alien that sounds to people who have no idea what we're talking about. I mean, think about when the Puritans used to sign their letters to my sister wife. What would a non-believer picking up a letter that I wrote to Jane that said to my sister wife, they'd think, it's true what they say about people in the South. (laughs) That's their most likely conclusion. So I want you to begin to understand that what we've got to really begin to do is to get people to begin to think about how thoughtful are, we really, are they really being. And that means that we ought to be a little more thoughtful maybe about our own Christianity. Are we really thinking about what we say and what we believe or are we just mimicking the words? Now, one of the things I think that we need to come to understand is the Bible's understanding of knowing is rooted in relationships. One of the problems with certain sects of the Christian faith is, is that mind, as I tried to tell you last week, which means much more than just our intellect, our intellect becomes the thing. We are incredibly great at being precise and precisionist about our doctrine and our theology. And we can articulate those things very well, but we're at a loss as to what to say to somebody when they say, well, I don't believe that. Well, now what do you say? And see, what I'm saying to us is part of being intelligent is the ability to communicate very difficult things into very understandable ways. This is the difference between being a ivory tower person and being a good teacher. Ivory tower people research and they can't tell you what they're doing. They can tell you and they will tell you, but by the time they get through, you're going, my head hurts, brother. And if you can't bring that down about... 30 levels, you keep at it. Now, we're glad that there are people who do those kind of things, but understand that really the people in your life that you have grown from primarily have been people who've been able to communicate very complex ideas in very understandable ways. So part of what we need to pray for in our own lives as we begin to think about is knowing and knowledge is not just an intellectual thing. It's a relational thing. Knowing God is not purely about knowing facts about God, knowing concepts about God. Knowing God is knowing Him. Knowing in the Bible usually has with it not only a relational, but when it's speaking of a man and a woman knowing one another, it has a sexual dimension to it. 
I did not just say, don't hear what I didn't say. I'm not saying that God and us have a sexual relationship. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that understand that knowing is very intimate, very personal. It gets inside the very warp and woof of you. For those of you that have been married a long time, I guarantee you that most husbands and wives that have lived with each other for a considerable period of time, they anticipate each other all the time to the point that some of them even finish the other one's sentence for them. Not because they're trying to be rude, but it's just the fact that they know that person. They have a concept of who they are. So we need to come to an understanding of part of being thoughtful about our Christianity is that we need to become people who are serious about understanding that Christianity is being in relationship to a creator. That's what it's about. All the other things that you lay in there, which are important, all hinge on the fact that we understand that what God has sought to do is to reveal himself to a people so that they might know him. A person's willingness to consider the matter cannot be seen as thoughtful or showing true intellectual integrity unless they understand that the main purpose of this is to be in relationship. Here's the Interesting thing, intellectual integrity is exactly what many people appeal to in their rejection of Christ and his gospel. Here are some excuses or some reasons why people say intellectually they can't accept Christianity. If God's really good, how can he allow such horrific tragedies? That is a very common thing you will find people ask. I guarantee you, anybody who spent any time witnessing to people, that is a common thing that people will say, intellectually, I cannot accept Christianity because you believe in a good God and no good God would allow the horrors that we have seen on this planet. There's just no way. Here's another one. How can you say Christianity is valid when so many people who claim to be followers of Christ and believers in the quote unquote gospel do such horrible things in the name of Christ? And you just fill in the blank of what they mean by horrible things in the name of Christ. Here's another thing that I've heard people say. Christians are so judgmental. Who'd want to go be a part of that group? They're always criticizing. There's always something wrong with somebody. They're never happy about anything. They don't seem to care very much about one another. Oh, sure, they do the superficial things of card writing and caring for people and that, but they don't really seem to really care. I've had people in my neighborhood tell me the reason why they switched from their church to Mormonism is because Mormons actually showed up in the neighborhood to help their neighbors move. They said, you're a minister. How many people helped you move in when you first moved to Tucson? I said, well, nobody really knew me. She goes, well, nobody really knew those Mormons down there either because they moved from Utah, but they were all here from their church to help them move in. Those things kind of sting us. But I'm not so much interested in you feeling guilty about that. I'm more wanting you to see what we're up against when you're dealing with people out there saying it's biblically un or intellectually a lack of integrity to accept these claims that you believe. Here's another one. This one stings too. I've listened to people talk about when they watched Christianity on television of a variety of sorts. They seem to be more interested in the bottom line than in helping others. Ouch. I want you to at least begin to see 
while we sit there and say it's why it's unwise and unthoughtful to reject Christianity, I want you to begin to think about what Paul's trying to say. These former Gentiles are looking out at their Gentile neighbors, and their Gentile neighbors need a reason to believe. And understand in Paul's day, what they were hearing was these people married their brothers and sisters, and they ate their God. That's what they were hearing. And so we face similar things. Well, that might not be what people are thinking about, but we do face similar things. Paul says that there is a more valid explanation than these reasons or excuses. And I don't want so much for you to have this so you can tell people this. I more want you to think about it yourselves and begin to wrap this around your mind so that as you talk to people, both encouraging people to grow in their faith and in people who are lost, you might think about this. What if all you appeal to is that which makes sense to you? See, I think that for most of us, and especially unbelievers, they appeal to things which make sense to them. That makes sense, doesn't it? What if all your decisions are based on that which you choose to trust? What you will find in a lot of people who are quote-unquote POMO or postmodern, um, whatever that means, try and find a really succinct definition of that, when you get to deal with them, many of them will tell you they believe in truth. They just believe in their truth. And see, this is where sometimes we make mistakes in witness them. We say, well, you don't believe in truth. And they'll say, au contraire, I do believe in truth. I just don't believe in your truth. Why? Because your truth doesn't work for me. It may work for you, but it doesn't work for me. What works for me is this quasi-Buddhist, Hindu, Jesus is my higher power, smoke some marijuana every once in a while to get in touch with the spiritual. That works for me, and that's my truth. It works. How can you deny that? And so what I want us to begin to understand is, is that, that Paul addresses this very thing. This is the problem. That might not be all bad if your thinking was clear and your heart was honest, but this is exactly what Paul says is not the case. Look at what he says again. Let's go back to verse 3. They are darkened in their understanding. They don't really understand. But they think they do. They're convinced what they see and what they understand is right. But they're actually darkened. Paul says that they're spiritually dead. They are separated from the life of God. And if you have life, if you don't have life, what do you have? Death. And so what you're always experiencing is death. But you think death is life. Do you understand that's what people around you who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how they live. That's how they think. They live thinking death is life. And some of you have never really understood that enough in your own life because you grew up in churches, so you really don't even have a concept. But you need to get with some people who really do remember what it was like to think about life being death. That every day you got up and said, it's a great day to be alive when, in fact, all you were doing was figuring out more ways to die. That's how a Gentile person lives. And they actively pursue it, Paul says. That's how they live. And we ought not be those kind of people. Willfully hardened, stubborn in the very core of their being, which produces in them a growing ignorance in ways to effectively deal with life and its complexities. Here again is a place that if we really take seriously what Paul is saying, don't live like that, we should be able to have thoughtful answers to people who are living in a world they have no real answer for. They cannot ultimately really make sense of it. They don't have the ability. 
And I'm afraid oftentimes we don't really believe that. We really sell ourselves and our importance as the people of God short. That we actually have something to say to people that would help them deal with life. And I'm not just using Jesus as the person that makes life easier to bear. That's not my point. I'm saying that really, if you really care about the world in any way, like Joseph, like Daniel did, Daniel and Joseph sought to be effective influencers without compromising their beliefs. They served the magistrates, the kings, well, because I believe they had this function. They believed in a God who gave them life and enlightened them. And whether they were killed or whether they lived, it didn't matter because they had God and they had the promise of His Son and therefore they had everything to gain and nothing to lose. Which means that they really had understood perfect love cast out all fear. Which means that I don't feel the frustration even when things aren't going well. And I don't ultimately think I failed because I can't fail if God is for me who can be against me? You begin to see how this flow of Christ at work in His people begins to create a people whose holiness is transformative out of them and around them. Their rejection of a good creator produces in them a rebellious disposition which has as its effects a lack of sensitivity to feeling any sense of shame or embarrassment. And that's ultimately what the language is saying here when it says in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I want you to think about that. If you wake up and all you know is death, then what you pursue are things that ultimately lead to death, but you think they're going to lead... You're greedy for them. Those things which somehow make me feel alive. Thus the invention of the X Games. I love the X Games. I love to watch the X Games. I love to watch all these crazy kids flipping motorcycles all up and... It's just incredible. Skateboards flying everywhere. It's, it's amazing what they do. But realize part of what has created that is this need to somehow feel like I'm alive. Listen to the interviews. When you listen to those people, I just, man, it was great when we did that and it was awesome. And they have this camaraderie and this bond and they all do insane things and they've all broken multiple parts of their body and they share that in union. See how they're trying to use... Do you hear that? They feel, I've been reborn. I'm in union. These are my brothers and sisters. We've got this. Do you hear all that biblical language? Because they're, they're trying to create what only Christ can give them. They desperately want it. And they'll do anything, even sacrifice their bodies to somehow feel connected. To somehow think, I'm alive. And so what they end up doing is hardening themselves and pursuing things which ultimately kill them, both physically and spiritually. They are in desperate need of something they will not seek. They will not pursue. They don't want to. Because somehow they believe the answer lies elsewhere. This rebellious disposition results in foolish conclusions, a complete lack of self-control, and the pursuit of all sorts of degrading and destructive activities. Part of the reason why I'm trying to get you to look at it from this perspective is because when you read these things and Paul says, don't be like that, what I don't want you to get the concept of is, yeah, don't be like those people. See, what I want you to say is, do you realize 
in humility, that's you without Jesus. Didn't Paul just say that's the way you were? This was your former life? This is who you are without the realization that you're in a relationship with God? You were darkened. You were ignorant. You were callous. You pursued every form of wickedness. What do you bring to the table? Absolutely nothing but your vileness, your rebellion, your crud, your desire for wicked things. And it's because of God's mercy that He has created you new, brought you into a family, united you with them, given you the Spirit, enlightened you so that you might see, I don't want to walk in death, I want to walk in life. The last thing I want us to look at then, the question is, what does a futile life produce? It produces a people who are both condemned by God and who are self-condemning as well. One of the interesting things you'll see if you read through the book of Exodus, I encourage you to do so, is that seven times it tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It also tells us seven times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so what we see is this willfulness, both that God turns them over to a depraved mind, and they are desperately desire to be depraved. It's tragic. They pursue the very thing that will condemn them. Romans 1 says similar things. Produces people who tend to focus on the consequences or secondary causes rather than the true source or root of the problem or issue. Please let that not be true of us as God's people. Please let us not constantly get caught up in the consequences and the secondary issues and not realize the main thing is sin which perverts and pollutes. The main thing is a rejection of Christ. That that really is at the bottom line why there are wars and rumors of wars. Why there are people who pursue wicked things. Why there's all this crud on the internet that's destroying lives. It's ultimately because our common enemy, the common enemy of humanity, is sin, death, and the devil. Let us never forget that. It produces people... um, who think about this, this is our sin nature and our alienation and broken relationship with God. They have this. This is what they're like. It produces people who seek even right desires and needs and goals in wrong and simple ways. Like I just told you, these, is it wrong to want to be connected to other people? No. It's not good for the man to be alone. Is it wrong to want to be connected to something spiritual? No. God is a spirit. Do you see how every turn it produces people who seek Real needs, real things that every human being was created for in twisted and distorted and perverted ways. It produces hardened and callous people. You shouldn't be surprised when you meet somebody who's 50 years old and has never known Christ who is hard, who is calloused. It shouldn't surprise you when you meet a 20-year-old who grew up being raped by their stepfather, that they might be a little hardened or calloused about life and about what really matters. And you just fill in the dots over and over and over again. It shouldn't surprise us. It produces people who are greedy for defiling themselves, one another, the creation, and most importantly, the goodness and glory of God. I sometimes watch various shows. I'm not necessarily encouraging you to watch them, but every once in a while I just, I just am just fascinated at these things where these women 
who are actually relatively attractive will go to these doctors, Dr. 90210, and have their incomplete bodies just, they are so desperate to be Barbie. To somehow reclaim something that I think if they were really honest with themselves, when did that ever really fully satisfy them? It didn't. And they'll spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to somehow reinvent themselves. Paul tells us not to walk in this manner because this is the way you were, not the way you are. That ought not be what consumes us. Remember, unlike the Gentiles, you're the new humanity in Christ. You have been, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase Ephesians 1, 17 through 19. You've been given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and illumination in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? We're not doomed. We don't have a lifeless destiny. And these are the things that the Spirit has been given to us to remind us of. What it should produce in us then is a compassion on others who are truly lost in darkness. A commitment to pray for one another and the lost. Think about this, men and women. We need to pray for each other. If this is really what we're up against, and it's this real, how much do we need to pray for one another to stand firm? That's why it's a we activity and not a me activity. I'm never going to pray for myself sufficiently. And I'm never going to pray by myself sufficiently for all of you. We need to pray for one another. That we might stand. That we might remember this is the way we were. And might not pursue these things or believe that these are the things that we're condemned to. All of this should produce in us a humble assessment of ourselves. It should produce in us a heavenly patience with other people and with our present circumstances. It should provide for us a determined diligence to evaluate and examine not just our actions, but our attitudes and our affections as well. Because indeed we are God's workmanship, created for good works, not a life of fear, frustration, and failure. May God continue to be at work in us. May He help us to believe these things. May we not be producers of our former life. But may God help us by His grace and mercy to live and walk humbly, to love mercy, and to do justly to one another and to all those whom God permits us to come in contact with. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.